yes, please. Somebody, somebody help me say thank you to this worship team and all of our volunteers. Yeah, everything went. Everything. But I got this thing all good. Woo! All right, please. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation. Yes, yes. As we do, Lord, we want to reverence you again. Spirit of a living God, fall fresh upon us. Lord, we reverence your holy presence, your loving power. We ask you for your wisdom and your revelation, Lord, to speak to our hearts, to open our minds and our hearts to hear you, to respond to you, Lord. And Lord, if there be any sense of familiarity for some as we approach your word, Lord, let us shake off the glaze of familiarity. And Lord, let your word find fresh uh, fresh uh, ways, fresh penetration into the soil of our hearts today. Let your word be like hot coals that come in and, and, and breathe new life and new heat into our soul. Spirit of a living God, we welcome you. Lord, we want to come to your word and we want to receive it and respond to it by faith under the anointing of your Holy Spirit. And if you believe that with me online and everybody else, let's say amen. Amen. Blessed are those who hear and heed. Wait, wait, let me get to the, I got to open it here. Blessed are those who read and hear and heed these words. Blessed are they. And if you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church right now. Now, here's where we are. We're in a bit of a, just a small, there's a, we're in a transition in the book of Revelation now. We are today going to conclude the section that is normally called uh, the letters to the seven churches. But the problem with calling this section the letters to the seven churches is sort of uh, we kind of infer is sort of an assumption. Uh, it's funny. Are you guys trying to find... I'm, I'm moving around. They're trying to find me on the camera. Aha! Um, uh, uh, the, the problem with that is that... Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Uh, is that it, it can be tempting or we might think that once we move past the first three chapters that, that, we've, that the audience has changed. That somehow there's this nebulous, who knows what's going on audience, but that's not the case whatsoever. This, uh, the entire book of the Revelation, the audience is these seven churches. So it's the same hermeneutic that we have used as to approach these, these little mini epistles is the same one that we're going to use to, to approach or interpret the entire text. So let's back up and remember, here's a lens as we finish this portion and prepare for the next, here's this lens. Number one, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, very good. Excellent. I, don't even, wasn't even, I didn't even have to raise my eyebrow. When I go overseas, I raise my eyebrow at them until they, they respond appropriately. Um, uh, so this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In it, John describes his vision of the exalted Christ who has a message for the churches. These and this. These and this. Very good, very good. Okay, so these are seven literal churches, but it was written so that each church would read the letter to every church. 
As such, what is, what is written to one is read by all. And as such, the blessing of reading this is for all of them who would read and hear and keep these words. So just as they read and heard and heeded, so must we. Now there is more to the book of Revelation than these letters of correction and encouragement, admonishment and all that. There's more to it. But too often, because people, too often it's compartmentalized. Like we hear these words, these direct words, we read these and we see that they're supposed to be in this immediate, uh, obedient response of faith to the words of Jesus. Someone said, amen. We see there's ethical demands here. Jesus is wanting to engage with us and we we respond to this in real time. But then, once we move on from this, there's kind of this historic temptation to kind of back away from, from, from the urgency of response and drift into the speculation of imagination, the speculation of observation. Hmm. And we, we, people begin to engage in speculative eschatology instead of remembering that although this is a prophetic book, that every page of it is intended that you and I respond with urgent obedience. Proper eschatology, proper consideration of the age to come and how it will all unfold will always place a a right now ethical demand upon our life. This is what it means to live with a view of eternity. To live with a view of eternity means considering how things are and will unfold, comma, how must I live now? This is our This is what it means to, the subtitle, live with a view of eternity. Someone said amen. Eternity is real and is trying to get your attention. Jesus Christ is coming and we should live like it. So here we are. We are reading these uh, letters to the churches. So let's just go right to uh, the letter to the, the church at Laodicea this morning. Uh, pick it up right at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. Ooh, so far, if we've been reading this, once we hear that, I know your deeds are, we think, because we've been, you know, we're in Laodicea, so we've read all the other ones, right? We've heard all the other times, and every time Jesus says, I know your deeds, almost all the time, something good's about to be said. I know your deeds. You know, you're swell. You love people great. You do all, you're persevere, and you're this, and you're great, and high five. And so we get ourselves, oh, we're Laodicea. I know your deeds, so now we get ready. Get ready, everybody. We're about to, Jesus is about to talk about us, right? Make sure my hair looks good. Okay, here we go. I know your deeds. That you are neither cold nor hot. What? I wish that you were either one or the other. Hmm. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Where's that Smyrna? Back to the Smyrna. (laughs) We got the wrong letter. No. uh, (laughs) We turned to sender. You say... 
You say, I am rich and I have acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. To those, pardon me, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest. NIV says earnest, the word is zelu, it's zealous. So be zealous, someone say be zealous. In each of these letters, we've tried to summarize them with the central imperative, and that is the one here. The central imperative, the main command is this, be zealous. Would you all say it like like it matters? Be zealous zealous and repent. Here I am, verse 20, here I am, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying or says right now to the churches. How many have ears to hear? Let's listen. To the church at Laodicea, the city of Laodicea was a wealthy city. They were very cosmopolitan. They were rich, and they were proud of it. When the, earth, when the great earthquake occurred in AD 17 and affected much of the region, Laodicea was the only city that said, we don't need anyone's help. They said, we don't need anything. We'll handle it. We have all we need. And they had powerful banks. They hosted gladiatorial games, and they had theaters. You might say that they had Wall Street, Hollywood, and ESPN. They specialized in producing a black wool, so they they had a bit of the fashion industry as well. And they were very proud of their medical centers. They produced something called Phrygian powder that was a solve to the eyes to treat eye disease. So Laodicea, as a city, they were wealthy, they were comfortable, they were entertained, and they were proud of it. And they had no water. They, had no, they did not have their own water source. So now we can, now it almost feels like, ah, so kind of like, they're like Las Vegas. They had to pipe in water from outside sources. And they had two good sources. In the, in the hill country of Colossus, not far away, was cold, life-giving, refreshing drinking water off the mountains, the mountainous area in Colossus, and they could pipe that in, refreshing, cold drinking water. And in, in the area of, uh, let me see, make sure I get my, my place. In the, in the Heropolis, not far away, there were springs that came out of the, hot springs that came out of the ground. And those hot springs provided cleansing and soothing medicinal water that could be piped in from the Heropolis. Both of these things were then piped into Laodicea. By the time the water reached Laodicea, it was sometimes polluted with sediments from the pipes 
and had become tepid. That water was lukewarm and induced vomiting. That water was useless. It was not hot nor cold. And then to that city, Jesus identifies himself as the amen, as the faithful and true witness, and as the ruler, or some Bibles say the beginning of creation. It's the same word, arche. It means the originator, the ruler of all creation. This is an awe-inspiring claim from Jesus, and it is one that Paul recognizes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. It says for this, For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before, R.K., all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the Lord Jesus, and this is who is speaking to the church at Laodicea, and this is what he has to say. He identifies their condition which is tepid Christianity. He says, I know your deeds. You aren't hot and you aren't cold. I wish you were one or the other, but because you're not, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, again, that's the NIV probably being slightly more polite. The word probably is closer to vomit. I'm about to, he said. Jesus says that he knows that the church has, is like the water there. That that church was, had, was not offering refreshing or healing. And that spiritual worthlessness was, Jesus found, nauseating. Well, what was the, what was the root of the problem? What was the root of the problem? Well, I mean, we could say things like, and it would make for good preaching if we said, hey, if you have to pipe in your water, you know, as a metaphor from somewhere else, if you have to import or imitate others because you don't have any life springing up from within you, you probably have a water problem. Or, if we, or we might say if we're looking for water elsewhere instead of letting his living water bubble up in our own lives, we may have a water problem. Or if I were speaking to church leaders and I would say, hey, listen, if you're still just, if your only hope is another guest or another consultant or you want to imitate some other program, instead of having the Lord do something fresh in you, you may have a water problem. All of that makes for good preaching. All of it's true, but none of that is probably the problem in Laodicea. Jesus identifies their problem. Their problem was pride. Pride. And he says it. He said, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. They had the same attitude as their city. They believed they were in need of nothing. The spirit of the culture had infected the church. And this is really important for us to hear because not only in this portion of Revelation, but for the rest of the text of Revelation, the rest of this text is going to urge us as readers 
to resist the creeping, sometimes aggressive influence of the world around us. What we will continue to read as these pages unfold is essentially the story of two, the tale of two cities, of Babylon and the city of God. And the text of Revelation is written to urge us to live loyal, faithful, pure lives as citizens of the kingdom and reject the influence of Babylon. Now, Laodicea, in contrast to the other cities around them that we've read, they, they apparently aren't feeling the pressure of persecution. They apparently aren't feeling the burden of poverty. And they apparently aren't really sensing the hostility that comes when we faithfully live as a radical alternative to the culture around us. Their attitude was, we are full and we are fine. And as such, their pride blinded them to their real need. And Jesus found it nauseating. That was their condition. What's their solution? Jesus gives them the solution, and that solution we're going to summarize as this. Once again, be zealous. Say it again with me. Their solution, be zealous and repent. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke. What's that? What's he saying to Laodicea? He loves them. He loves them. So it's easy to hear this. I was like, man, Jesus woke up on the wrong side of something. He loves them. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. And oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. If we lose sight that this is written, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that it is the revelation from and of the one who loves us first and most, we will so miss the power of this text because he's called the lion, but when we gaze at him later, he is the lamb. He is the lamb who gave his life to redeem. He, he is, when he writes to Laodicea, just like he's written to every other city and just like he's writing to you and me, he is writing as the redeemer. He is writing as the one who loves us first and most. So he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So therefore, be earnest, the NIV. Be earnest and repent. Be zealous. Be zealous. He tells them, buy gold refined by fire. Come to Jesus and receive. He alone will supply you. Come and find real faith and real devotion that is pure, without sediment, without pollution, without compromise and corruption. Receive from the Lord Jesus garments of righteousness. Let him cover you with his righteousness. 
and receive from him healing for your eyes so that you can see the truth, so that you will no longer be blinded by your pride. And he affirms, as we said, that his reproof, his discipline are expressions of his love. It's important that we understand in all of the texts of Scripture, but especially in Revelation, the difference between the wrath of God and the discipline of God. The wrath of God is about his punishment. The discipline of God is about his loving correction. And we are the targets of his loving correction. The prescription, the main imperative, let's say it again, be zealous. Say it with me. Be zealous and repent. Earnestly turn away from your passionless, arrogant Christianity. Be, be zealous, be fervent in spirit. We, we need to try to, in some way, help ask the Lord to help us feel that. He's literally, the command is, be fervent in spirit. The Greek there, zelu, means to boil over. I know many of us have tried to boil something, right? So you put pot water on the stove, and you heat it up, and then there's little tiny little bubbly things that happen, and then you stare at it, and you stare at it, and you think it's gonna go faster, and then nothing happens, but it just keeps doing the little bubbly thing, right? Then after a while, it sort of does that rolling, the rolling boil. And we think, ooh, that's good. That's not Zalu. The little bubbles, not Zalu. The, the rolling boil, not Zalu. But when that thing goes blip, blop, blip, blop, and the pan, the, the lid flies off, and the water's going everywhere, and you're going, ah, the water's going everywhere, and ah, it gets on your face, and you're screaming, and you're looking. That's Zalu. You think, well, that sounds a little extreme. That's exactly the kind of heart that Jesus is calling us to have for him. That's it. This is the heart that Jesus is calling for. Make no mistake, friends, in the call to follow Jesus, there is no invitation to mediocrity, nor is there room for apathy. I find it interesting that in the first church, in these letters, the first church, Ephesus, Jesus requires that they return to their first love. And in the last church, he insists on their zeal. So what is often treated as optional or elective or in addition to, or hey, that's, hey, that's, for some, that's only for some churches, some, some congregations, some personalities, you know, that's just excitement, that's just enthusiasm, that's just energy. You know, I actually, <laughs> it's okay, I don't mean to criticize him. I actually had someone say, I really like, boy, I really like, Heri- I really like heritage. I just don't know if I have that much energy. <laughs> Hopefully you're on the receiving end of it. But what, what, is, what, what, what is often treated as elective, Jesus, Jesus expects and insists upon as vital. These bookend desires of Jesus for his church, from his church, are love and zeal. And to these churches, because they lack these specific virtues, he says that they must repent. Repentance is the most comprehensible, beneficial act we can do. It is the ultimate righter of wrongs. It is the most renewing, healing, and restoring thing we can do. Here's the truth. Let me say it again, friends. No one who has repented ever regrets it. No one ever regrets repenting. 
we should be earnest about repentance. We'll be better off for it. We'll be holier. We'll be happier. We'll be more free and more alive. And repentance is always the way to renewal. Always. It is in this passage as well. He said, be earnest and repent. And then here's the promise. For those who will be earnest, those who will be zealous and repent, here it is. Their promise is restored relationship and shared rule. Verse 20, here I am. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Revelation 3.20 is often happily, successfully used as an evangelism verse. Right? We go out there and you tell unbelievers or those that are far from God, you say, hey, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door of your heart. He's knocking at the door of your heart and he wants to come in. If you'll open it up, he'll come in. You'll get born again. Hallelujah. That's not wrong. It's all good. It's all good. And let me just say it again, friends. I don't know everybody in the room and that's good. May it ever continually, continually be so. But let's listen to these words clearly. If you are far from God, It is time to come home. Come home. Jesus is knocking on the door of your life. And if you will open your heart, he will move in. He will, you will be born again, born from above, born by his spirit. It's more than a decision. It is a reception of the very spirit of God. Jesus will give you his spirit. and You'll be born again. You can come home. And yet as wonderful as all of that is, this verse doesn't necessarily mean that. This verse isn't written to unbelievers. He hasn't, he hasn't turned around and you know, pointed the loudspeaker to the city of Laodicea. He's still talking to the church of Laodicea. He's telling the church of Laodicea, hey guys, guys, I'm out in the parking lot. Your pride has displaced my presence. Your pride has displaced my presence, but I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up on you. I'm knocking. I'm knocking. Because Why? Because he paid for you. The price was too great for him to abandon you. He is not looking to be some sort of a deadbeat dad looking to bail out whenever he gets the first opportunity. No, he's not giving up. Their pride displaced him, but he had not given up on them. Knocking on the door, he said, but if you'll open the door. If you'll be zealous, if you'll repent, I'll come right back in. And we can be together. We can eat together. We can have fellowship together. We can have covenant together. And not only that, not only that, but if you overcome, verse 21, to the overcomers, not only that, not only will we be together and have fellowship, but I'll open up, I'll share my rule with you. And he says, he offers this magnificent, great hope to those who he has described as nauseating. And yet he gives this great hope of restored fellowship and shared rule. And that hope should prompt them and anybody who hears this to repentance. And that hope should stir them and everybody who hears this to zeal. To zeal. To follow the Lord with zeal. Therefore, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to these churches to the church in Laodicea, and to the church heritage. Hey, friends, if you're newer here, let me affirm something to you if you haven't picked it up already. Heritage is a wonderful place. 
It is full of really good people and increasingly more so. And it is a, it is a very zealous place. <laughs> and yet we are a part of a larger community. We are part of the Pacific Northwest. We're part of the church in North America, and we are not immune to the influence and the effect of tepid Christianity. Tepid Christianity is, seeks to be respectable and tidy. Tepid Christianity is often very cooperative. It doesn't want to get in the way of social progress. Tepid Christianity is affirming. It, it tends to accommodate sin instead of resist it. And it's convenient. This is the thing. This is the thing. Tepid Christianity is convenient. It, it fits into our life instead of overwhelming our lives. And tepid Christianity is convenient and it is arrogant. It is fueled by pride. Tepid Christianity is fueled by our pride. Fueled by, hey, it's not necessary, we're okay, we're good. Tepid Christianity is no longer intentionally desperate. Tepid Christianity says that spirituality is fine in moderation, but let's not let it disrupt what is really important. Pride says we don't really need anything. We don't really need that. We don't need growth or sacrifice or change. We don't need prayer or prayer meetings, really. No sense waiting on the Lord. We don't really need to be concerned about holiness or purity, and we certainly don't need repentance. Most of all, here's the deal. Pride does not have any need, nor does pride make any room for zeal. Pride will always displace zeal. It will always keep us from the vitality and the virtue of zeal. So the Lord says to this church and to the church of every age and to even to us today, if we will listen, here's the word of Jesus. Don't be tepid. Don't be lukewarm. Don't be dulled and, and, and polluted by your pride. Be zealous. Romans chapter 12, verse 11 has this command for us. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep, keep your spiritual fervor. What is that word, keep? To protect it, to preserve it, to guard it, that we take it as our responsibility to keep the furnace of our affection and our devotion to Jesus boiling over. Well, how do I know if I've got a zeal problem? You know. You know. But let me give you one hint. If you hear the word of Jesus saying, be zealous, and you say, yeah, I think I'm good. 
you may have a zeal problem. <laughs> if I asked you to be zealous about fitness or about a hobby, you would know what to do. You would know what that means. We know. To be zealous for our Lord Jesus means that the, the cooled coals of your heart burn again with devotion and service to Jesus. And then we live accordingly. Live accordingly, yeah, because a zealous church resists the influence of a carnal culture. A zealous church is a place of holiness and healing and joy. A zealous church is a bright an unwavering beacon of hope. And ultimately, a zealous church is pleasing to our Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me and pray? Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you today and we ask you to cleanse us from pride and to keep us from pride Keep us, cleanse us, and keep us, Lord, from any pollutant that would cool our zeal for Jesus. I thank you that you have called us to follow you with the same fierce zeal that you have in pursuing us. So Lord, we repent of anything that would get in the way, of anything that would cool or quiet our devotion, anything that would pollute Let us be a zealous congregation. This we pray. You can have it all, every part of my world. Take this life and This heart that is now yours, you can have it all, Lord. You can have it all, Lord. Every part of my world, take this life and This heart that is now yours. Lord, we ask that you would capture us, fill us with your spirit, cleanse us and keep us from anything impure. And Lord, lead us, anoint us, empower us to be a people who follow you with zeal. This we pray in the mighty, matchless, miraculous name of Jesus. Somebody said amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here today, everybody. Be kind to someone on your way out. Stay dry.
It's a wet one. 